You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a fellow and deputy director of legal policy at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor of the City Journal. He's authored and co-authored a number of MI reports and op-eds on issues ranging from urban crime and jail violence to broader matters of criminal and civil justice reform. Holding a JD from DePaul University, his latest book is titled Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts the Most. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show, Rafael Manguel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Sure. Well, um, so yeah, you already got my name, Rafael Mangual. I am uh, born and raised in New York, originally from Brooklyn, um, born in the mid-80s, so lived in Brooklyn through the end of the 80s into the mid-90s when my family decided to move out to Long Island in large part um, because of crime. So that was a you know major factor in that decision. And so, you know, this issue is, has been one that I paid attention to for a good portion of my life. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, trained as a lawyer, uh, got really interested in the justice system while I was in law school and kind of oriented, um, you know, my my career uh, toward toward this route and was lucky enough to find a home at the Manhattan Institute, a uh you know, not-for-profit uh, public policy think tank where I've been for going on a decade now um, and, you know, get to do the kind of policy journalism that I've always wanted to do, just looking into issues of crime and justice and policing and incarceration and, and sort of sussing out what, you know, the dominant narratives about these issues get wrong, what they miss, and and being able to write about that and and contribute to what I think are really important public debates. It's It's been a, a real honor. Yeah. So your latest book is titled Criminal Injustice, What the Push for Decarceration and Depolicing Gets Wrong and Who It Hurts Most. So the policing issue over the past few years, especially in the media and the public debate, has become so much rhetoric and narrative. It's genuinely refreshing to see a book that that recognizes the complexities and nuances inherent in in policing in a country with 330 million people, and 900,000 cops, and it is, is solidly grounded in the data. So to start, can you give us an overview of the premise and the main argument in the book? Yeah, I mean, really what the book seeks to do, and what I seek to do really through the book is to identify the gaps between the dominant narratives and the claims that the dominant narratives about crime and justice and policing rely on and reality. Um, You know, it is very easy for, I think, a lot of people to buy uh, into the idea that policing, criminal justice writ large are sort of characterized by draconian sentences and, you know, unjustifiable violence on the part of police and over-policing and over-criminalization. And while all of these systems are no doubt imperfect, um, I don't think that the system can be fairly characterized in that way. And so 
really what the book seeks to do is kind of explore each of these issues and examine the degree to which the sort of dominant narrative that we've all been fed through legacy media outlets, through um, academic institutions is actually right, whether there's much more nuance than, you know, sort of the casual observer of the public debate would come away with appreciating. Um, and, and I think there is, and I wanted to bring that out um, by, by exploring each of these issues in, in detail and doing so in a way that is is both rooted in the data, but also that illustrates what I think the data shows through storytelling and, um, you know, both my stories and the stories of other people who have been victimized um, uh, by violent criminals. Okay. So one of the, the points that you emphasize in the book is how geographically hyper-concentrated crime is. So you write that about 5% of a city's street segments will see about 50% of that city's crime. In New York, about 4% of street segments see, see half of the violent crime. So the straightforward answer to me, it would seem, would be to concentrate the city's police resources in those areas. I mean, the argument that people like Trevor Noah make is that that just addresses the symptoms and not the causes, and that as soon as these police officers go away, the crime comes right back. However, I mean, it's an economics podcast. Um, from an economics perspective, it seems to me that the argument is missing. That argument is missing one big piece of the puzzle, which is development. So if we pack the most dangerous areas in, say, New York or Chicago chock full of police, then without the street shootings or the daylight robberies, businesses can finally start to move into those areas, creating jobs, giving people purpose and economic mobility, increasing tax revenue, which means better schools, better institutions, so on and so forth. So right now, if I was looking to open a business, I would never consider those 4% of New York's neighborhoods. But if there was an armed cop on every corner, suddenly that area turns into an un, un, underserved market ripe for, for exploitation. Um, so over time, these areas themselves would trans transform. And even if the police presence was reduced, crime would go back up. Or at least, I mean, from, from sort of the conventional economic standpoint, that would be our understanding. Um, yeah. So basically... I, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's exactly what happened in New York. I, th I think one of the underappreciated aspects of New York's story of its victory, uh, on the, in, in the war on crime is that the, the control of crime in public spaces and on city streets gave what were once neighborhoods that were sort of unthinkable for middle and upper middle class families to live in. It gave those places the room to breathe and grow and be developed in a way that over time actually fortified them against future crime increases by making them less vulnerable um, to crime as a result of development, as a result of the increased foot traffic and the concentration of business activity, which brought with it things like CCTV cameras and tax revenue and, you know, other uh, uh, sort of populations of other people who who are not as predisposed to crime, and so you know, kind of watering down the concentration of criminal actors in a given place, which 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 makes a difference. Um, you know, all of those things really matter, and so I I, I very much see crime as sort of a first order problem. Um, that if you get that under control, a lot of other societal issues um, you know tend to to kind of uh, fall into place, and 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 that's really important. But on the concentration point. I mean, there are really a couple reasons why I bring that up. I think you're exactly right to say that if we know where crime concentrates, well, then that ought to help us uh, sort of make strategic decisions about things like limited resource deployment. And um, that's exactly what many cities do, um, uh, really thanks to New York, which uh, is is the the place where uh, CompStat um, was was invented and then you know sort of uh, transferred to jurisdictions around the country now jurisdictions around the world police departments everywhere are using comstat 
but by by informing um, resource deployment, I think we also have to understand that crime concentration is important to recognize for a couple of other reasons. One is that it tells us a little something about who actually stands to bear the brunt of the downside risk associated with crime increases. And if, you know, uh, uh, listeners remember the subtitle of the book, you know, it ends with, uh, and who it hurts most. And you know, the reason um, I, I spend a lot of time talking about the issue of crime concentration is because I think it really drives home this point that crime is a phenomenon that is disproportionately experienced by the most vulnerable members of our society. And it's not a lot of them. It's a very small slice of American society. And I think that gets lost in our, our public debate. And we tend to talk a lot about sort of America's crime problem or New York's crime problem or Chicago's crime problem. But, you know, the, the reality is, is that the vast majority of, of the United States, the vast majority of any of our cities are as safe as the safest places in the world. Um, you know, what, what the, the phenomenon of crime concentration shows is that there are a very small number of, of, pockets of, of, of really concentrated crime that rival the most dangerous places in the world. And, you know, I think there are so many degrees of removal that the average American has to that kind of um, violence on a daily basis that it makes it really difficult for them to uh, internalize and really have a, a genuine sense of what the downside risk associated with the decarceration and depolicing project are. Um, the other reason I think it's really important um, to, to focus on crime concentration at the outset of any real discussion about this is that that phenomenon of, of both geographic and demographic concentration, right? It's not just that crime is concentrated in these tiny, you know, parts of American cities. It's also very concentrated among tiny slices of the population within those geographic pockets. So, you know, in New York City, for example, a minimum of 95% of all shooting victims every single year for which we have data are either black or Hispanic. Almost all of them are male. So even if you're living in one of these pockets of really concentrated crime, your chances of being violently victimized um, are much lower than they if if you're say you know a white woman in her forties than they would be if you were a black male between the ages of eighteen and twenty five, um, and and so when you understand both the geographic and demographic concentration of crime, which you know basically means that certain demographic groups are overrepresented in the geographic spaces where crime concentrates, well then that allows us to, I think, better understand what flows from the enforcement and resource deployment decisions that that, that reality um, leads to. And so there's a lot, you know, to the idea that the, the decarceration and depolicing push is very much a function of our broader debate about racial disparities within the criminal justice system. Um, and, and that's, you know, an important conversation to have, but we can't fully understand those disparities in enforcement statistics, for example, which are often relied upon to make the argument that we need to dismantle these enforcement mechanisms without appreciating the fact that those disparities are a function of disparities in where crime occurs and who suffers the brunt of it, right? I mean, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we want our law enforcement institutions to be responsive to where the problem is, or do we want those resources to be sort of evenly deployed across the country without regard to where crime concentrates? I think the latter approach would be immoral because it would be to deny the most needy people of a very scarce resource from which they stand to benefit much more than anyone else. Okay. Um, so then, I mean, 
well, one of the key arguments you make in the book is that, that more police in a, in a given area equals less crime in that area. So for for the cities across the, the U.S. Um, that have a, a crime problem, but not, not a generic crime problem, a, a hyper-concentrated crime problem, is the issue that we typically see not enough police officers, as in they know where the crime is happening. Um, they know how to fix it. They just can't afford to or, or don't have the police resources to deploy, or is it a lack of strategic um, targeting that they're they're deploying their resources too broadly in an area where it's not necessary as opposed to concentrating them commensurate to crime levels? I mean, I think it's a couple things. I mean, there are certainly parts of the United States that are, are significantly under-policed. I mean, there are a lot of cities that are currently struggling to fill even budgeted slots for police officers and that matters. And so, you know, that shortfall is certainly going to manifest itself in crime that wouldn't otherwise occur if those slots were full. Um, but the quality of police also matters. The degree to which data is informing deployments also matters, but so too does the disposition of the broader criminal justice system. And, and that's a point that I really wanted to drive home with this book. I mean, you know, the lesson that more police equals less crime is one that is thoroughly illustrated by, you know, all of the best research out there. But it is one that depends on the rest of the criminal justice system playing ball. And to the degree that prosecutors are going to refuse to prosecute those that the police bring in, to the degree that penalties for offenses uh, that police would enforce are systematically lowered, um, to the degree that incarceration becomes a less likely sanction, even for repeat offenders who pose a high risk of, of, of reoffending, then police action is going to be, um, it's, it's going to matter less and less, which is to say that the effect of, you know, a police deployment is going to be more muted if the rest of the criminal justice system isn't also oriented at the same goal. And that's one of the things that's really, I think, you know, characterized the last decade plus in America is that, Increasingly, and in a lot of our, you know, large urban jurisdictions, which account for the majority of the country's crime, um, it is the case that we have seen this kind of rollback of the criminal justice system in many of the ways that I just mentioned. And the, the sort of cumulative effect of that is to essentially lower the transaction costs of committing crime. And at the same time, you have this police reform movement that is really seeking to increase the transaction costs of enforcing the law. By, you know, adding new unfunded, you know, mandates for, you know, compliance with things like discovery and more paperwork, uh, you know, as a result of, of uh, you know, federal oversight of police departments through like pattern and practice investigations, etc. Um, you know, all of that, uh, I think, contributes to to the problem that, that we're seeing today. So, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that it's as simple as like, hey, we've just got fewer police in this place. Therefore, that explains all the crime. But that's certainly one factor. Um, but I think the larger story is that even if we reinvest in, in, in policing as an institution, which I think lots of people, even those who were uh, open to rolling uh, that institution's footprint back quite a bit as recently as 2020, um, have sort of expressed that, you know, that's going to matter less and less if we don't have prosecutors, judges, um, parole boards, uh, et cetera, on board with, with actually following through and providing a backstop to those police efforts by keeping repeat offenders off the street. Yeah, and and I did, I did I did want to talk about sort of the incarceration aspect next. Um, the the argument that you make in the book is that America doesn't have a mass incarceration problem; it has a violent crime problem. 
She write, quote, as of December 2018, more than 60% of state prisoners were incarcerated primarily for a violent or weapons offense. And historically, more than one third of convicted violent felons have been on parole, probation or pretrial release at the time of their offenses. So it seems to me that the issue is that um, often or, or too often people committing violent offenses already shouldn't have been on the street. Um, so, I mean, just last week in North Dakota, men named Shannon Brand drunkenly killed an 18 year old boy by running him over with his car after they had a political argument and was released on a, on a $50,000 bond. So that's alarming to me because even the most progressive politician alive can probably agree that, that he has no business being out of jail. I mean, uh, admitting or, or pretty much out, outright murdering someone. Um, so as you point out, this, this kind of thing isn't just an, 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 an anomaly. It happens much more often and the data, data would point to that. So, so can you tell us a bit about, um, sort of this, this, um, problem of violent offenders on the streets and why you argue that we don't really have a mass incarceration problem? Yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I, I think if you want to understand the mass incarceration critique, I mean, you, you have to look at how that critique is is leveled. And it's often leveled by unfavorably comparing the United States to other Western European democracies. And so the implicit claim there is that the United States uh, should be incarcerating uh, at the same rate of, say, England or Germany or France. Um now, for us to do that, we would have to release about 70 to 80 percent of all people in, in prison uh, today in the United States. And so one of the best ways to sort of assess whether we actually have a mass incarceration problem as defined by these international comparisons um, is to ask the question of whether we could safely decarcerate on mass. Could we release, you know, even 50 percent of all people uh, in prison without actually um, incurring a significant risk to public safety. And I think that the answer is no, uh, as a result of many of the things that you pointed out. I mean, you know, for one thing, the vast majority of people who are in prison today are there primarily for a violent offense. And I'm saying primarily because our prison statistics are a function of what's called the top charge. So whether someone is listed as a violent offender or a drug offender uh, is going to depend on how, like what the the highest end potential sentence is for all the charges they were convicted of. And so if you were, um, say, arrested and convicted for illegal firearm possession um, and uh, uh, drug trafficking, let's say you had a kilo of cocaine in your trunk, well, you might actually stand to spend more time in prison for the kilo of cocaine in the trunk than you would for the firearm offense. And so you'll be listed in the data as primarily a drug offender, even though you were also convicted of this weapons offense that's often, you know, indicative of involvement in more serious violent crime. Um, but, but even, even, you know, accepting that, you know, you have 60% of, of state prisoners who account for close to nine out of every 10 prisoners in the U.S., and primarily for either a violent felony or a weapons felony. Um, and so this is already a population that has proven um, that they are violent in their dispositions, which is indicative of uh, at least somewhat of the kind of risk that we would be incurring by releasing them. Then when you look at the sort of typical criminal history of someone who's incarcerated in the United States today, I mean, if you look at the, uh, the state prison system, 
you'll see that the typical person leaving a state prison in a given year will have somewhere between 10 and 12 prior arrests and between five and six prior convictions prior to their most recent incarceration. So these are people who have already demonstrated through their prior behavior a commitment to noncompliance with societal norms. Um, so that's another factor that it, it sort of helps us get a sense of what the danger would be uh, if we release these individuals. And then, of course, we have the recidivism data, which shows that, you know, uh, again, as to state prisoners, uh, over, say, a 10-year period, somewhere between 80 and 83% of those individuals will reoffend at least once. Um, on average, those individuals will generate five rearrests over that 10-year period, which is a significant amount of recidivism, especially when you consider the fact that the vast majority of crimes, A, don't get reported, and the vast majority of crimes that do get reported, B, don't actually result in an arrest. So, you know, the recidivism data is still to a significant degree under uh, um, uh, sort of estimating the risk uh, posed by these individuals. When you take account of all three of these factors, the fact that the vast majority of people in prison are there for violence, the vast majority of them have extensive criminal histories, and that the vast majority of them are going to go on to reoffend if released, well, then that actually helps us get at uh, the an answer to the question of whether we could safely decarcerate en masse um, you know, to, to achieve parity with other Western European democracies or to cut our incarceration rate in half as, as our current president, um, promised to do when he was on the campaign trail. And the answer to that question is no, we couldn't do that safely. And so if that's the case, then, then I don't think you can sustain the claim that we have a mass incarceration problem. Now, that's not to say that there isn't a subset of people incarcerated in the U.S. that don't belong there. Um, I am, you know, not naive. I understand that our, our criminal justice system is not perfect. It can be inefficient. It can be inequitable. It can be malevolent, right? So, so there are certainly, I'm sure, people in prison and jail today whose incarceration is not currently serving a legitimate penological end. Um, but there is also a significant portion of the general population that is not incarcerated. Um, either by virtue of the fact that they got away with the criminal conduct they've engaged in or um, by virtue of the fact that the system has treated them too leniently. Um, and, and those people should be behind bars. And so when you sort of weigh the over-incarceration problem as to those incarcerated you know, who shouldn't be against our under-incarceration problem, i.e. those who aren't incarcerated but should be, I think the, the under-incarceration problem looms larger, um, especially when you consider the fact that you know it is a problem that disproportionately affects the most vulnerable members of our society. Um, uh, and members of our society that that a lot of people who uh, sort of push for and advocate for decarceration and depolicing say that they're fighting for. And that's kind of one of the ironies um, that I think you know, my book tries to highlight. Yeah. So the, the next thing I wanted to ask you about um, is sort of the prosecution side to this, especially with regards to, to lower level crime and, and progressive prosecution. So we've, we've all heard about policies like San Francisco's Prop 47, which makes shoplifting or theft under $950 a misdemeanor. This is by no means unique. Um, DAs across blue cities in the U.S. have been taking drastically softer approaches to, to lower level crime. So, I mean, what would the, the data indicate with regards to the, the, um, the, the effectiveness of this strategy? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's important to understand that it's a very new strategy. I mean, you know, the term progressive prosecutor probably would have been, you know, completely foreign, um, you know, to someone 10, 15 years ago. Um, and yet, 
in, in a matter of a decade, you know, really since 2014, we kind of went from, you know, very few, if any, places with, you know, real progressive prosecutors to, uh, you know, where we are now, which is you know, so probably somewhere between 40 and 50 million Americans living in jurisdictions with self-described progressive prosecutors. And, and by progressive prosecutors, I'm, I'm referring to people who have sort of outwardly uh, committed to non-prosecution of whole categories of crime who seek to reduce incarceration as a likely outcome of a criminal conviction, whether by choosing, you know, uh, non-carceral sanctions like probation more often or by downgrading or dropping uh, charges so that incarceration uh, isn't an option or by engaging in, in more favorable plea deals. Um, by progressive prosecutor, I, I'm talking about people who, you know, place uh, administrative limits on the ability of line prosecutors to do things like use sentencing enhancements for, you know, gang involved offenses or for gun involved offenses or for third strikes. Um, who, who place administrative regulations on the ability of line prosecutors to seek pretrial detention. Um, all of these things, I think, again, sort of contribute to this broader movement to lower the transaction costs of, of, of committing crime while raising the transaction costs of enforcing the law. And I think that when you do that on a massive scale, you tend to get more of the behavior that you've made cheaper to commit and less of the behavior that you've made more expensive uh, to engage in. And so, you know, that that's one thing I think we have to sort of start with. And then, you know, in, in terms of the progressive prosecutor movement more broadly, I really think it suffers from two main problems. One is that it's anti-democratic in nature, right? It, you know, the idea that simply winning one very low salience, uh, low visibility election that often takes place off cycle that gets very low voter turnout can allow, you know, for the, the, unilateral abrogation of duly enacted legislation through, you know, uh, uh, broad commitments to non-enforcement, um, you know, is, is, is frustrating the, the democratic and political process. It's an end run around the political process, right? I think lots of criminal justice reformers, you know, were spending a lot of time and money, uh, you know, trying to lobby lawmakers to see things their way. And that's the right way to go about it. Um, but I think they quickly realized after 2014, when Robert McCullough was unseated by Wesley Bell in St. Louis County, that actually a more effective and cheaper route might be to just put a lot of money comparatively into these elections, but less money compared to what you would spend, you know, trying to get these things passed through the legislative process. And, and you can actually affect quite a bit of change simply by winning a race in, you know, a state's biggest city. Um, so that's problem one. Problem two is just, you know, the public safety problem that I think is the likely result of misguided leniency. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there's some analyses of, you know, progressive prosecutor jurisdictions that claim to find that, you know, progressive prosecutors, uh, don't increase crime, you know, but, but, but there are a lot of, of, of issues with that very, uh, still developing, um, and small literature. Like, you know, for example, just comparing, um, whether a progressive prosecutor, uh, has been elected, um, to the effect, uh, or to the trends in, in overall crime rates, right? Uh, over the entire jurisdiction. Well, you know, we wouldn't expect crime to go up everywhere within a jurisdiction, right? Given how concentrated crime is, what you would really want to see is, is whether, you know, crime goes up in the places where it was already a problem because those are the places that are actually vulnerable to crime increases. And also you probably wouldn't want to look at all crime in the aggregate. You'd want to look at the sort of crimes that are most likely to be affected by the, the, the sorts of decisions actually being made 
Um, and, and so I think, you know, this is one of those things where we've moved much too fast. We've gotten out over our skis without really knowing what the cumulative effect of this is, is going to be. But I do think it's important to note that there really aren't any progressive prosecutor jurisdictions that seem to be getting it right. Um, I mean, you know, Dallas seems to be doing okay in, in, uh, over the last year, but, um, you know, look at Philadelphia with Larry Krasner. I mean, San Francisco with Chesa Boudin and George Gascon before him. L.A. under George Gascon. Baltimore under, under Marilyn Mosby. Uh, you know, um, uh, there are a lot of these places are, are, you know, suffering real harm. And, you know, the idea that a prosecutor, um, you know, dropping, uh, you know, 15 or 20 percent more cases against gun offenders or diverting 15 or 20 percent more cases against gun offenders is not contributing to that problem. I think strange credulity. OK, so I, I also wanted to ask about the racial aspect of policing, which has become quite a hot button topic in, in the last few years. So you write the quote, while imperfect American policing and criminal justice cannot be fairly characterized as systematically racist, when race neutral factors are controlled for racial disparities and criminal justice outcomes shrink substantially. So this argument is one that I think a lot of people don't really want to look at the data for if it doesn't support the narrative, but it's, it's very important nonetheless. So can, can you look, lay out the facts for us regarding this claim? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, it, it is very easy to just look at top line disparities in things like enforcement statistics, arrests, police uses of force, um, incarcerations and come away saying, well, this is, you know, clear prima facie evidence of racism within the criminal justice system. And therefore we should work to change that. Um, yeah, but that, that I think is, is not a particularly useful way of, of assessing the problem because it fails to control for really relevant factors that might actually offer race neutral explanations for why this is the case. I mean, for example, if you look at just incarceration rates, it is true, uh, you know, and this is a point that, that George uh, Soros raised in a recent op-ed in, in the Wall Street Journal. I mean, he harps on the fact that black men are about five times more likely to be incarcerated than white men. And, and that's true at a top line. But it's a disparity that doesn't really explain itself. Um, it's certainly not uh, one that 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 constitutes prima facie evidence of racism within the system, because once you control for the relevant factors like the crime committed, like the severity of the crime committed, like the criminal history of the individual charged with the crime, um, like whether or not uh, uh, the person turned down a plea bargain and went to trial. I mean, once you control for all of these factors that affect sentences, what you find is that there actually isn't a racial disparity um, uh, between black men and white men um, with respect to incarceration. You know, the, the, the National Academy of Sciences actually did you know, a broad review uh, of the evidence on this. And I'm going to read you just a quote from, from that study. I mean, this is the NAS, right? It's not, not certainly not a right-wing um, you know, sort of uh, propaganda shop. They say, quote, overall, when statistical controls are used to take account of offense characteristics, prior criminal records, and personal characteristics, black defendants are on average sentenced somewhat but not substantially more severely than whites. Um, you know, and, and really what we're talking about is differences of a couple of months in an actual sentence handed down, which is a strange way for racism to manifest itself, right? I mean, the idea that every time you come across a difference uh, in outcomes that doesn't have a clear explanation, um, uh, 
that that you know should automatically be assumed to be evidence of, of racial animus, I think is also misguided. I mean, in the policing context, you see the same kind of phenomenon, right? When you look at um, you know, studies of police enforcement, yeah, you, you tend to find racial disparities in the top line statistics. But once you control for um the crime levels in certain areas, um, you know, the, the geographic concentration uh, of crime, you know, and, and the enforcement activity that it drives, what you find is that when you adjust for those factors, um, you know, that that generates, you know, very substantially reduced or in some cases eliminated evidence of bias in the form of, of remaining um, uh, disparity. And so, you know, controlling for relevant uh, factors is, I think, really, really important. It's something that is is too often lacking in our sort of broader discussion about these issues. Um, but there are a lot of other reasons for us to kind of be skeptical of the claim, you know, that, that the criminal justice system and policing as an institution are, are racist. Um, I mean, one thing is, you know, a historical analysis of, of the sort of tough on crime policies that are often pointed to as, um, you know, artifacts of racism uh, would, would tell a bit of a different story. I mean, yeah, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 is a really good example of this. So this is a piece of federal legislation signed by President Reagan that established a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and powder cocaine. And, and today it's often pointed to as you know, clear evidence of racism in the system because it was broadly understood that that crack was much more popular of a drug and much more prominent in, in low-income minority communities compared to powder cocaine, which was much more prominent in upper-income uh, white communities, and that, you know, this disparity reflected, um, you know, racial animus toward toward low-income minorities. And, and but, but if you look at just the history of how that came to pass, what you'll find is that 16 of the 19 members of the Congressional Black Caucus at the time co-sponsored that legislation, which passed the Senate by a vote of 97 to 3. Um, so, so that's, that's meaningful. If you go, you know, and, and read, you know, local, uh, newspapers um in the 1970s in, in communities like East Harlem, you'd find just really intense rhetoric against the drug pushers on the street. I mean, there was a lot of political support um within the black community for a harsh response to the crack trade. Um and and there was a lot and remains a lot of support for for kind of you know sort of traditional uh, methods of law enforcement within those communities. And so the idea that you know, the criminal justice system is just a function of white racism is complicated by that reality. It's also complicated by reforms. I mean, you know, on, on every measure, we have seen things move in the direction that, you know, purveyors of the claim that America's criminal justice apparatus is racist, uh, you know, have, have made. So, I mean, if you look at policing and use of force, for example, use of force has become increasingly rare over the last three decades, four decades. Um, you know, in 1971, when the NYPD started keeping track, I think that the department shot like 220 some odd people. You know, that number is, is down to about a dozen in a given year now. Um, you know, if you look at incarceration over the last decade plus, you'll see a significant reduction in, in the incarcerated population, but also you'll see a significant reduction in the racial disparity of the incarcerated population. Um, I mean, just in the post George Floyd era, you have seen a ton of responsiveness to concerns rooted uh, in um, 
the, the sort of politics of, of racial grievance through, uh, uh, you know, in, in the form of, of reform. So like the New York Times, for example, uh, in April of 2021, did an analysis finding that um, 30 states passed somewhere like 140 different criminal justice reform bills just in the year after George Floyd was murdered. Um, you know, so, so that's another complicating factor, right? I mean, why would a system that we're told is sort of built and operated for the specific oppression of, uh, of low-income minorities be so responsive to the concerns um, coming from those communities? Um, you know, that, that's, that's the question that I think has a, a a much more complicated answer that that hasn't really been grappled with, and then, you know, to me, the biggest piece of evidence kind of weighing against this idea that systematic racism char- characterizes criminal justice and policing in the U.S. is that, you know, it, that claim rests on ignoring an entire side of the ledger. Right? It looks exclusively at enforcement outcomes as if those are the only outputs of the criminal justice system, when in fact. You know, uh, there are other outputs that are much more important, such as crime declines, right? If you look at the crime decline of the 1990s, which is something that is celebrated by every single police leader, police executive, you know, uh, prosecutor at the time, this is something that they all saw as core to their mission. Um, and it's something that, you know, is still how people in the criminal justice space, um, you know, sort of measure their success today. Well, that crime decline disproportionately benefited low-income minority communities. And, and so if you just look at the homicide decline between 1990 and 2014, it added a full year of life expectancy for the average black man in America. It only added 0.14 years of life expectancy to the average white man. And so again, I ask the question, why would a system allegedly designed and operated for the specific oppression of low-income minority communities so disproportionately benefit low-income minority communities when the system achieves its stated ends, as stated by the people at the system's helm, as stated by police chiefs, as stated by prosecutors who, you know, you you ask the majority of them outside of, you know, maybe Larry Krasner and, and you know, company, you know, what are you trying to achieve? And they're going to tell you, we want to get crime under control. Well, when that happens, Again, keeping in mind how concentrated geographically and demographically crime is, when that happens, it benefits low-income minority communities much more than anyone else. And so, you know, I think our, our sort of discussion about race and criminal justice has really been dumbed down and stripped of really important nuance that when taken into account uh, makes a lot of the central claims on which the more radical ends of the reform movement uh, rest on that, you know, it really complicates those claims and it makes them much harder to sustain. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Raphael. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you everyone for listening to the economics review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.